Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we go back to school. We're joined by David Cutler. David has been a U.S. history and journalism teacher at Brimmer and May, a private school in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. He is also the executive director of the Private School Journalism Association, a recently formed group that is trying to bolster interest in journalism programs in private schools across the country. It began in 2019. Hey, thanks for joining us. You have a writing background. Can you tell us the story as we ask everyone here to to do the first question? Tell us the story of your journalism path. Sure. Uh, Good question. So I actually began writing for the newspaper, which I now advise. And I wanted to get into journalism in college and at Brandeis University uh, in Waltham, Massachusetts, I became news editor of The Justice, which is their student weekly paper there. And I just got really involved in it from there, uh, writing articles for The Justice. Uh, Also, I freelanced for the Newton Tab, the Wellesley Townsman, local newspapers in the area. And then in my senior year, and I think my junior year as well, I began stringing a bit for the Boston Globe. Uh, covering uh, Rentham and some other local local towns in the area. And uh, it just really was always a passion of mine. And once I began teaching, uh, actually a few years after I began teaching, uh, my head of school realized my background in journalism and asked if I would want to advise the yearbook and also uh, the newspaper. This is when I taught at a great school in Miami, Florida. And I said, sure. And so from there, I began to uh, not just advise uh, publications, but also do more of my own education reporting. And I guess, as they say, the rest is is history. That's cool. So yeah. there, are, there are a number of journalism education groups, the Journalism Education Association being one of them. We've had uh, guests on from there. You're working, it seems like, in cooperation with them. What's the purpose of the Private School Journalism Association's existence as its own group? Yeah, no, great question. Uh, and the JEA has been has been just fantastic, as has been the two national scholastic organizations, Columbia Scholastic Press Association and NSPA, the National Scholastic Press Association, and also Quill and Scroll. Um, but so the impetus for starting PSGA uh, really was, of course, to work in tandem, not to compete against these other organizations. Uh, but it's been clear to me in my 15, 16 years now of teaching at independent schools that when me and my peers uh, attend national conferences, a lot is specific to the public school sector, especially when it comes to student press rights. You might go to a a great presentation uh, by the Student Press Law Center, which is just fantastic. We're doing some cool work with them now. But at the end of it, they say, oh, this just applies to public schools or or public schools in whatever states um, or or, uh, areas in the country. Uh, and so, you know, it's really awesome that we're seeing these new protections for student journalists and advisors pop up in various states, uh, new voices legislation, which I know that you and your listeners are probably familiar with. Uh, but by and large, except for Rhode Island, which, which has something called the Leonard, Leonard Law, and California, uh, there really are no protections at all for uh, private school students when it comes to speech. Uh, and also there are no protections for advisors. So that, what that means is you might have a great head of school that's gung-ho and lets students 
you know, write and speak freely, but once that head of school leaves, you're kind of out of luck. And so I've encountered quite a few advisors uh, that have encountered that difficulty as well. So yeah, right now our work is focused on uh, student press rights at private schools, um, but it's it, it goes deeper than that as well. Sure, and we're gonna talk in both in this interview both about your teaching and the teaching of others at some of these schools, but also the organization as a whole, which is what I wanna stick with for now. Um, so you mentioned priorities. Um, another concern that I think that you seem to have based on looking at your website is membership. Yeah. What, what's, what's the situation with regards to schools that wanna be members of a group like yours? Sure, uh, well, yes. So um, I teach at an awesome private school uh, although they want me to say independent school. In New England especially, the market is saturated with private and independent schools, uh, whatever their difference. Uh, and uh, you would think, this is kind of the long answer, but you would think that uh, these schools with mission statements that really trumpet student voice and leadership would be fully supportive of independent student voice. They're not. Um, I'm talking specifically about here in New England and I don't want to mention any, any names of schools uh, because I want to support them, not call them out. Uh, but the reason why I know that is not just because, well, this, the independent school world is a small world and I've done my research, but you can tell based on membership from local scholastic organizations like the New England Scholastic Press Association, uh, where private school membership is between 10 to 11 a year. Um, and uh, although it's greater on the national stage, again, this is not based so much on hard data, but based on my observations and talks with scholastic press directors and advisors throughout the country, the majority, it seems to me, of schools or private schools that belong to the national scholastic bodies are from either Texas or states out west, uh, which have greater protections for students at private and independent schools. I don't want to overgeneralize, but I know that when I think yeah. of private schools, I think of wealthy. When I think of wealthy, I think of certain political leanings. And when I think of that, I think of the idea of distrust of the media. Do you think that that's a potential issue here? Well, you know, a lot of the schools, at least here in the Boston area, are, are quite liberal. They're, they're quite progressive. And, and most families are actually also progressive uh, as well. Uh, so that is an interesting idea. I haven't actually given too much thought to that, um, although I, I, I do think I'm on solid footing saying that, again, not to sound like a broken record, uh, most schools in the area are, are progressive, as are the families that, that matriculate uh, to, those, to those institutions. Um, but that could be true in other parts of the country. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, maybe in states down south, that could be true. Um, for sure. Okay, so um, tell me about um, some things that are developing with your group. Tell me about your board of directors. Yeah, so um, so we um, had a great symposium, our first symposium uh, online because of COVID and, and, and Delta. And, well, actually, this is before Delta because of COVID. Uh, and then after that, I, I asked uh, the folks that had attended, and there were about uh, 80 people in attendance from, I think, 40 schools around the country and one in London, England, if anybody would be interested in joining an advisory board uh, to get this organization really off the ground. And I spoke to a few key people that I thought really 
are already existing supporters of student voice in and beyond their community. And I thought that why not gather these amazing people uh, under one umbrella? And so we have heads of school. My head of school is amazing at Bremer and May that supports student voice 100%, uh, as is the head of school of the American School in London. Uh, she's also fantastic. Um, we have also Ray Westbrook. He advises a number of publications, including The Remarker at the St. Mark School of Texas in Dallas, Texas. Uh, he is one of the most award-winning, recognized, and celebrated advisors of any type of school uh, in the country. Um, you know, we also have uh, Erica Salkin uh, from Whitworth University. Uh, she is a professor of communication studies. She actually literally wrote the book on private school journalism, and she's also on our board. Um, and we have a number of other award-winning advisors as well that are just simply fantastic, that are really passionate about having a focused mission, at least to start as focused as possible, uh, and then you know sprouting out from there. Um, so I, you know, I just I couldn't be more happy uh, to be working alongside such tremendous not just advisors but but educators um, as we as we go through this this really important work. Um, and I should mention too, just to reiterate, we, we are not at all, uh, we don't at all see ourselves as competition for any other scholastic organization. Um, we are a free, completely 100% free membership organization. Um, we direct schools to CSPA, NSPA, and their local scholastic affiliates. Um, we are really here um, as, a, as a resource and uh, as a uh, conduit for connections. So a year from now, what do you want to say that you've gotten done? Uh, yeah, I mean, right now our focus is on drafting some type of opt-in new voices type of pledge for schools on the individual level to, well, opt into, um, because that's not happening on a state level for various legal reasons we, we don't need to get into. Um, but my hope is that we can work with other organizations like JEA, like the Student Press Law Center, to, to get this document worded and created correctly and to have big name schools sign on to it. And hopefully there will be no need to go to the courts uh, because, you know, there will be a tipping point where schools see big name schools signing on to this pledge that they themselves will also do the same. To give us, um, for those that aren't familiar with New Voices, just give sure. a, a, a brief overview because I want to make sure that people know what you've been talking about. Yeah, so, so very broadly speaking, uh, and, and by the way, if, if folks want to know more about New Voices legislation, um, the two places that are really important to go to, um, the Student Press Law Center uh, and also the Journalism Education Association. Yep. So, you know, in 19... 88, there was a famous Supreme Court case, uh, you know, Hazelwood versus Hazelwood versus Kuhlmeyer, which basically it, it provided a, a ceiling of pr protections for, you know, public schools across the country. And it was a pretty low ceiling, but it existed all the same. However, it did say that if based opinion that said article would impact the learning environment or for educational purposes couldn't be shared, that article couldn't, well, couldn't be shared. 
And so what's happening now is more and more states are passing new voices legislation, and it's been introduced in, in 10 states, and bills are now under consideration also, and I think Hawaii, Kentucky, Missouri, Nebraska, Tennessee, uh, Texas, New York, uh, and a few others that I'm, that I'm forgetting. But, but basically what this does is it gives students even greater protections than those afforded under the 1988 Hazelwood decision, uh, which again, really didn't do all that much. But at the same time, at least students had some kind of protection with Hazelwood because administrators had to offer some type of justification. Whereas if you're at a private or independent school, you're not guaranteed any justification. The administration can make up anything they want to for a reason for censorship or prior review, and that's their prerogative. Um, so we're, as I said, we're really happy to see uh, progress be made with new voices. Uh, but you know, we really think it's time now for private schools also to, uh, to make some advances, especially because many of our schools share mission statements which say that they value student voice, say that they value student empowerment and student agency, but when it comes to literally putting pen to paper, at least for students, uh, many schools, not all, but many schools don't go far enough. I want to go back to something you wrote, just to kind of, we'll, we'll kind of segue here. Uh, the group, your website, ps-ja.com, the lead story on the site is about the dying state of private school journalism. I imagine a year from now, you want to write about the living state of uh, private school journalism. Um, yeah. how, how are things and how far does it have to go to go from where it is to where it could be? Yeah, um, th yes. Um, I wrote that article a few years ago. Yep. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think it remains true today that the state of private school journalism is, is pretty dire, um, especially in New England. Uh, not so much uh, in California, in the Western states and Texas, but here in New England, especially, it's pretty dire. Um, schools that should have thriving, robust publications don't. Some schools have publications that thrive for a year, but then become defunct for whatever reason. An, an advisor leaves, students graduate. Um, but it's true. We, we are really, really suffering uh, with a lack of consistent quality journalism uh, especially here, as I said, in New England. Uh, and, you know, my hope is that PSGA can inspire these schools who have such lofty mission statements to do what they actually say they do. And for any administrator listening to this, you know, I, I encourage you to look at our resources, look at the resources provided by JEA and SPLC and CSPA and NSPA, uh, and, and really don't think of it so much as, uh-oh, this now means that students can write negative things, which will hurt enrollment. Think of it of, think of it as an opportunity to show potential students and families how much you actually value your mission statement. You, you value it so much that you allow students to not just think critically, but to actually share their critical thinking with the world online or on paper or both.
And we'll get to some of that at your school in a second. But first, I want sure. to give you a chance. Can we shout out uh, some other schools that are doing good work in terms of managing their journalism programs? Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, there, there are a whole bunch. Uh, there's a terrific school, Dobbs Ferry, New York. Uh, they have a school, a, a school, they have, excuse me, that they have a, a paper called Tower. Um, it's online and uh, you can check it out at uh, Tower, Tower, T-O-W-E-R dot master n-y m-a-s-t-e-r-n-y dot org it is absolutely fantastic um with a, a tremendous advisor uh award-winning students they're actually a hybrid publication they do both online and print i don't know how they do it uh simply fantastic um another paper that i would really encourage people to look at uh it's called the standard um, it is uh, the paper of the American School in London, uh, which is a uh, private school. It belongs uh, under the National Association of Independent Schools. Um, and their paper um, is just also equally phenomenal. Um, they have these features that could very well appear in you know, the Boston Globe or the, the, the LA Times or the New York Times. Uh, they have tremendous podcasts uh, and, and, and videos. They're also a hybrid publication. Uh, you can check them out at standard, S-T-A-N-D-A-R-D dot A-S-L dot org. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't also give a shout out to the paper that I, that I advise, uh, The Gator. Yep, we're getting to them. Okay. <laughs> uh, so but can, yeah. I, can I just interrupt here to segue into the next sure. question, which is what are some of the things that you do in your journalism classes that you're particularly proud of? Sure. I, I think hands down, our opinion section is the strongest. It's the section that has garnered the most awards throughout the year. And I really am so thankful for that because, you know, students really feel agency over issues, not just that, you know, issues that don't just pop up in, in school, but in the community or their communities and also around the world. And they localize them and they make them personal, which makes them newsworthy for the Gator. But, you know, we have students covering, uh, you know, LGBTQ issues. Uh, one student, you know, uh, came out as bisexual in one of her articles this year, uh, which was really fantastic. I was so proud of her. We have other students that are writing about, you know, uh, how, <laughs> how, how it seems that government is falling apart and calling on uh, their own leaders to behave more like adults, which is kind of strange coming from 16, 17, and 18-year-olds, but they're it's right. It's been a theme. It has, it has yep. been a theme. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, students that are, that are also localizing uh, what it means to be uh, or, or hold dual identities. Uh, whether that means based on race, you know, ethnicity, creed. Um, I just couldn't be prouder of students in that, in that section. I'll give two examples that I, I read through. One was you mentioned the bisexual student who was not happy with how LGBTQ relationships are romanticized at an unrealistic level. The headline yeah. on another from, uh, this was from February, Stop Demonizing and Stereotyping Russians. This was written yes. by your editor-in-chief, who is also, this was impressive, a pre-professional ballerina. Um, yes. And that, that was, it was impressive that someone of her age could approach a topic with, with such mature 
thought and be able to do something else at a pre-professional level at the same time. So check her out on the Gator. Her name is Natalie. She is fantastic. Every day after school, she has two to three hours worth of ballet practice. Uh, she has the most impressive work ethic I've ever seen. And I, I have no shame in saying this. I look up to her. I am awed by what she's able to do within the time frame that's afforded to her. She, she is really remarkable. That's great. Um, this is something we've, when we've talked to uh, teachers from New Jersey, Texas, uh, every school has had someone uh, of this ilk that is just extremely impressive. And you hope that someone like that continues along uh, in journalism. Also, sure. I've noticed that you uh, bring journalism teaching into your history classes. I'll quote, I see a yeah. direct connection between what I learned in journalism and what I'm doing now. That was something that John Meacham said to you yes. uh, that uh, I thought like, that's perfect. He's a historian in your history classes. He talks about the value of journalism. That's impressive. Um, how do you integrate journalism into your history classes? Yeah, no, great question. So um, my major was history. My minor was journalism, Spanish and Latin American studies. But then I, I went on to get my master's in history. And when I was doing my, my master's work, I, you know, I just realized that the best writers of history, at least in my opinion, also happen to be you know, journalists themselves. Um, I, I happen to be a huge fan of, of, of Evan Thomas. Um, who I don't know if he has formal history training, but still, uh, his writing is so so fluid. It's so it's it's so clear. Um, and so when I train my juniors in American history to be clear and precise and thoughtful, I actually have them write op-eds. I teach them opinion writing, which, as you know, covets clear, precise thinking and also clear, concise prose. Uh, and so I do a lot of op-ed writing in my classes before we even get to, and I only do this because I, I feel like I have to, I don't really love teaching it, but the five paragraph essay stuff. Um, and then once they, they see the similarities themselves, their writing is just, it's so much easier for me to read, but I think the students themselves, I think I know, they also feel it's easier to convey what they're thinking down on paper, having had some of that practice with, with journalism. Why do students take your journalism class? Uh, so um, I think a few reasons. I think students like agency over what they can do. Um, I make no, like it's known that journalism is my favorite class. In fact, I don't even call it a class. I, I call it a newsroom. And it's a place where I wanna be as invisible as possible. I'm there if students need me, but, but really I just take joy in watching them work. Uh, but the, 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 the course itself, again, not a course, but the Gator, the, the newsroom itself, caters so well to student agency and student ownership. And try as I might, I can't mimic that same degree of ownership in my other more academic courses, which is why I, I just love, love the Gator so much. And students do it not for the grade, but because they, they love to produce and they love to share what's important to them. I would be remiss if I didn't also say, of course, students like the accolades. It looks good for college, right? Um, there, there's always that. But I truly believe that for the students that really excel, that's secondary or you know, maybe even tertiary. Really, it's, it's just the love of, of creating and sharing stories and 
trying to get other people to do the same. And do, do your students go on to pursue journalism majors? Yeah, there have been a few. Um, uh, my first year at Brimmer in May, I taught a student, AJ Nadolf, who has actually gone on to write a few stories for the AP. Uh, a number of years ago, I taught a few students uh, at, at my former school that have gone on to do some great stuff with their college papers. But, you know, I, I look, very few of my students are going to go on to major in journalism or become journalists themselves. My goal is not to necessarily make journalists, although if they pursue that, that's, that's awesome. But I just want to use journalism as a venue, as a way to teach critical thinking and clear, precise writing and great communication skills. I mean, that's conducive to no matter what you do in life. That's awesome. And yeah. so with that, um, I've been wanting to do something on journalism adjacent uh, writing topics that get integrated in somehow. And with you, I know that you're a big proponent of comic books in the yeah. classroom. Um, I feel like that can be journalism adjacent. So just can you tell me about what that's about? Yeah, uh, I'm glad. I'm so glad that you asked that. Sure. Um, so um, I, I used to be really heavily involved with a terrific organization called Reading with Pictures. Um, uh, and they are all about getting comics into schools and schools into comics. It's readingwithpictures.org. Uh, and they have a terrific board. But, but in any case, just to give them a shout out, they do great work. Yeah, I mean, uh, I truly believe that art is a form, it can be a form of storytelling. And actually last year, one of our students earned for her portfolio uh, best cartoonist in the country, um, which is a tremendous honor um, from the Columbia Scholastic Journalism Association. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I tell my students all the time, when you think about covering your story, don't forget about the artwork. And artwork, for those of you who don't know journalistic lingo, doesn't really mean like, you know, like a Picasso or Matisse. It means like, is it going to be a photograph? <laughs> Is it going to be a photo illustration? Is it going to be, you know, uh, 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 a cartoon? It's in charts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah, the more I can get students to think about that, and not just a one-off editorial cartoon, but sequential storytelling as well, I think is really important. That's one area where I really want our paper uh, uh, to, to improve upon, sequential art. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I love it. I love also, how with journalistic writing, it's really concise and to the point. Um, comics, people that read comics, I mean, you can get through a comic and, and, and really understand complex information, I think, so much easier uh, because of the duality of the words and pictures, this tremendous marriage between words and pictures, which really helps with comprehension. And I, I'm not just speaking off the cuff here. There have been studies that this is actually true, uh, especially also with people that have learning disabilities, uh, reading with comics uh, really helps retention and also comprehension. Uh, I will, so you're right. Go ahead, sorry. I will, no, vouch, I'm done, I'm done. I will vouch for uh, comics being useful. I grew up on Peanuts uh, for yeah. many, many, many years. And I can tell you that I learned a lot of pop culture, historical references, uh, how to construct a story in a short uh, amount of space. Uh, definitely through the work of uh, Charles Schultz. All right, to close, can you Love name that. a journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to give a shout out to? Yeah, um, I, I really um, am a big fan of the committee, <clears throat> excuse me, CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists. 
Um, I'm really worried about journalists being attacked physically or threatened, not just in our nation, which is happening more and more frequently. It seems every other night I watch someone accosting a NBC, ABC anchor yep. or what have you, uh, but really also, you know, across the world. And uh, the truth needs to be told. And that's really hard to do if you fear retribution, not just for yourself, but also for your friends and especially your family. And so I really am passionate about the work of, of CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists. It's, uh, you can visit them at cpj.org. Yep, they do, they do very important work. Uh, David Cutler, you do uh, important work too. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.